0: Well, happy Father's Day. Yep, yep, yep. all right. Yep. I don't know what kind of response you're supposed to have. But happy Father's Day. Um, do you know what hermit crabs do for Father's Day? They celebrate their dads. Yep. Uh, any fathers of cheerleaders here? Did you get served Cheerios for breakfast? What do you call a moose without a name? A moose Last one, I promise, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Uh, dads, hopefully your jokes uh, get more laughs than mine do. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5 this morning, and what we've seen in the first four chapters of this book is uh what what hannah's song uh what she says in in her song um comes uh into being uh it, it happens what she what she's saying in her song at the beginning of samuel um is realized here at the end of first samuel and the beginning of second samuel now if you look at samuel as one book instead of two what well, you see that it's divided up by songs it ends Uh, in 2 Samuel 22 with David singing a song. Um, It's it's divided in the middle with David's song of lament for Saul, but at the beginning there is Hannah's song, and Hannah sings this song uh, celebrating what God has done for her. And and, and in this song, there's there's this part of the, it's very prophetic, and she says that this, she says this, that, that the Lord brings low and the Lord exalts The Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. And and essentially what she's pointing to is God humbles the proud but exalts the humble. And that's exactly what we see happening at the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel. That here is this, this Saul who has been appointed king, but he disobeys God, and so God rejects him, but he doesn't remove him from the throne right away. He, he does it over a period of time, and in that period of time, he is humbled more and more and more until at the end of 1 Samuel, he's lying dead on, the, on, on a battlefield. And at the beginning of 2 Samuel, uh, one of his sons is taken and made king in his place by hereditary right by a guy named Abner. Uh, and ish is made king, but we saw last week ish gets murdered. And in, in Saul's house, there's only one person left who could possibly king, be king, and it's a guy named Mephibosheth. Um, but because um, uh, he, he, he was crippled at an early age, he wouldn't be seen as a powerful leader, so he would be rejected. So what we see is the house of Saul is brought low. And also, David is being exalted. He was anointed king earlier on, but he spends 10 years on the run from Saul, until we get to first Samuel or second Samuel, and, then, and we see him, he's anointed first king over Judah, and this morning we're going to see him being anointed over all of Israel as, as king. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Um, the first three verses um, are, the, are the ones we're really going to hone in on this morning and what the, the people of Israel say to David when they make him king. That's the, the, the really important part and the part that I want us to spend the most time on. However, I don't want to neglect the rest of the passage because it's important. And so we're going to actually start there and looking at what, G, what uh, David does immediately after becoming king. And he, has, he accomplishes three things in 2 Samuel chapter 5. The first thing he does, as seen in verses 6 through 10, is he establishes a capital city. Uh, There's this place called Jerusalem, and you and I know it very well, but at that time, Jerusalem was not a part of Israel. Um, Jerusalem was a city that was inhabited by the Canaanites, a, a particular type of Canaanites called Jebusites, and the city was on the border between the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now, David chooses this city, uh, in part one, because it's, it's a well-fortified place. It's easily defendable. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But he also chooses it because it's not a part of any other tribe in Israel. Um, like Hebron was a part of Judah. If he made Hebron his capital, then there would have been Israelites who would have said, I don't really have a part in that capital or a part of this people because I'm not a tribe, part of the tribe of Judah. What, what David is doing is he's establishing a capital city that anybody in Israel can identify with because it wasn't a part of anybody else's tribe, all right? But the second reason for choosing it is this, it's a well-fortified city. In fact, 400 years before this, when uh, God told Joshua to go into the promised land, leading the, the children of Israel, they, they were told to, to remove all the inhabitants of the land and, and, and drive them out, um, they didn't do that to the Jebusites. They were unsuccessful at removing them. Later on, the tribe of Judah was unsuccessful at holding uh, the city, and the tribe of Benjamin also was unsuccessful in taking the city. And so for all this time, for 400 years, here's been this, this one city in the middle of these two tribes that was held out or held out against the Israelites because it was such a strong, fortified city. So what David does is he goes and he, he, he attacks the city, but he doesn't attack the city from the inside out, or from the outside in, sorry. He attacks it from the inside out. Instead of, of laying siege to the city because of its, its walls and because of its, its armament and because of all that, no one had ever been successful at laying siege to it and winning. So David attacks it from the inside out. He sends men uh, through the, the, the city's water supply system to, to come in, sneak into the inside, and, and conquer it from the inside out. And, and this is a picture of the gospel. When you think about how it is that, that God has, has conquered us, how is, is it that he brought his king to us? How is it that, that he establishes his kingdom in us? Is it by bringing a heavenly host of angels to militarily conquer us, or is it through the sending of his son, uh, born of a woman, becoming flesh and blood, dwelling among us, and ultimately, it's through his love and his grace that he conquers us from the inside out. Right? It's a picture of the gospel. Now, uh, David, uh, he, he goes and uh, he, he's gonna fight the city of Jerusalem. And, and the city of Jerusalem, they're very, very prideful. They've never been conquered before. They, they, they're arrogant and they say, even our blind and lame people can keep you out. But David conquers them. And interestingly enough, this is not the first time that David goes to Jerusalem. Um, back in 1 Samuel 17, after David defeats Goliath, he chops off David's head, or Goliath's head and he takes it to Jerusalem. We don't know why. It doesn't explain it. But it just simply says David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. And, and so people, you know, they, they've come up with ideas about what he did there. Maybe he put it on a pike outside of Jerusalem with a threat. Like, I'm, I'm going to come back for you one day. Like, I'm going I'm to uh, d- destroy you like I destroyed this giant. Some people take it a step further and believe that um, the, the place where he, he put this pike with Goliath's head on it was a place that would one day be known as Golgotha a place of a skull, and maybe it's a play on the words of, of Goliath's name, Goliath of Gath. Now, it's interesting to think about, but that's not a, nothing that the Bible says. You can ask David that, about that in heaven. But, but he, he takes the city of Jerusalem, he calls it the city of David, and in so doing, he's able to unite the, the people of, of Israel, and they all have a common place that they can call their capital that doesn't belong to one tribe more than it belongs to another. And so we read in verse 10, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The house of Saul has come down, the house of David is on the rise. You see this coming true. The second thing that he does is he build a, uh, builds a palace. In verses 11 and 12, uh, we see that the, the Phoenicians send materials and workers to build David uh, a palace in Jerusalem. So not only will he have a, a crown, but he'll also have a throne. And this is significant for a people because having a common place that they can go to their king in order to express their needs is is important. It's a unifying thing for him to be able to have a seat from which to hear from his people. So long as he's a king that provides and protects, not a king that takes, we'll talk a lot about that, then then this is an important part of of him unifying the people. Then there's this side this parenthetical statement that we see in verses 13 through 15. We've seen this a lot so far in, in Samuel where um, there's this narrative flow that's going on and, and, and the author's telling a story but then stops and pulls back and gives us more information about what's going on. And here's this parenthetical statement. It says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nefeg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. What do we see? He had a bunch of wives in Hebron. Now he's taken Jerusalem, and he's going to have a bunch of more concubines and wives. We talked about this before that for David, he does a lot of things right. And he goes to God about a lot of things, but there's one part of David's heart that is left unsurrendered to God, unsubmitted to God, and that is his relationship to women. And, and the author of, of Samuel is, once again, he's pointing to this, and this is foreshadowing of things to come, that in the middle of all the things that he's doing right to unify his people, here's a foretaste of something that's going to break his people apart. The unsubmitted parts of David's heart will destroy him. And the question remains, after he falls, will he be raised back up? So it gets back into the narrative. In verses 17 through 25, we see the last thing that David does, and that is he gives rest to his people from war. Uh, the Philistines come out uh, against them. The Philistines were the, the primary threat in the region against the Israelites at that time. And, uh, and, and, and up until this moment, uh, the Israelites, they were, just, they were very tribal. And they fought a lot against one another. We just, we just saw the, the end of a, of a civil war between the, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. They, and because they were, they were constantly fighting among each other, they were relatively weak. And for the Philistines to see that Israel's going to unite all of Israel under under his authority, that means that that there's a power shift in that region of the world, and Israel will will gain strength and power because of its unity. And so they go out against uh, Israel, and they, they choose a place to attack it called the Valley of Rephaim, which is right in between Benjamin and Judah. And the hope there is that by attacking it there, they can capitalize on any sort of uncooperativeness between Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah. If they can prevent the tribes of of Israel from uniting under David, then they can still maintain power in the region, but they fail. So David, he inquires of the Lord, should I go up against them? And God says, go. And David, he leads this frontal assault against this this army, He attacks them head on, and, and God wins for them. And, and David calls this place Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of the breakthrough. In and, and David's imagery, it's like the, the God was like this big wave, and they just, they just crushed over the enemies. Well, uh, the, the Philistines uh, regroup, and they come at them again. And David asks again, should I go up against them? And God says, yes, but this time go around from behind them. And, and hide behind these trees, so to speak. And when you hear the sound of a marching army through these trees, then you know that I've gone before you and I'm giving them to you. And sure enough, uh, David's army goes out and they, they rout the Philistines and David provides peace for his people for a significant period of time. It's not over. There's still other uh, uh, people groups to fight and that sort of thing. But the Philistines' uh, power, they're, 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 it's relegated for, for, for a good amount of time. So we see three, three things that David does. He unifies his people through establishing a capital. He unifies his people by giving them a place to come and meet with him. And he unifies his people by, by giving them peace and rest from war. So he, he protects them and he provides for them. Right? This is a picture. And the, and the question is, for how long will David be this kind of king? So I want to go back to verses one through three now. And this is where I want to spend the most of our time. If you read with me. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So, David becomes king over Israel. Notice that it says that David made a covenant with them. This is not a picture of a people coming to swear allegiance to him, but there's something that he's promising to do to them. We see this sort of carried out. He's going to protect them. He's going to provide for them. We see that through the rest of the chapter. But there's three significant things that the people of Israel say to David about what they hope he will be. Three pictures of the kind of king they're hoping David will be. Here's the first one. We are your bone and flesh. We're your bone and flesh. This is marriage language. You you go back and and, and when we see uh, that God brings Eve to Adam in the garden, and Adam first takes a look at Eve, and what does he say? You are bone of my bone, you're flesh of my flesh. Like There's this connectedness that we have, that we are a part of each other. This is marriage language. The picture of, of, of David as husband and Israel as, as wife. And, and this is something that is, is a reflection of what God is like. At least five times in the Old Testament, um, God is, is said to be the husband of his people, Israel. That the, the kind of relationship that God has with his people is that of a, of a husband who willingly takes on responsibility for his people. And, and see, human leadership is supposed to reflect what God is like. Godly leadership is supposed to to show the the people that it leads and the the world at large what God is like. And so David is supposed to be like a husband to Israel in the same way that God was. He's supposed to reflect what God is like and in, in this way as a role of husband to provide and to protect. That's the first picture. Second, they say to him, in times past, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. What, what, what they're essentially saying is that even when Saul was king, after you defeated Goliath and you, you took over, like we, we followed you into combat. You fought for us. In other words, he's seen as a type of savior, a guy who fought for his people. And they sang songs about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. They saw David in this, this type of savior type of, of, of role. He, he was out to, to save his people from their enemies. And again, this is a reflection of what God is like. In, in the Old Testament, we, the, the, the pillar or the, the, the climax of the Old Testament really is the, the salvation message, message of, of Exodus, how God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt that he's the savior, that he's the one who conquers their enemies, as seen through the the 10 plagues poured out on Egypt and as seen as the destruction of Pharaoh's army and the crossing of the Red Sea, that, 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 that God is the savior of his people. And in this way, God's leaders are supposed to reflect what God is like to their people and to the rest of the world. So David is supposed to be a type of savior fighting against his people's enemies. Third thing, Says this, uh, the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. They're recognizing that God has, has called him and anointed him. Um, he's to be prince. That's the title, but the role is shepherd. It's shepherd. That, that God would, would take this shepherd boy out of the pasture and, and pluck him down on a throne to do the same kind of job. Only instead of shepherding sheep, now he's shepherding people. He's to be a type of shepherd. And in this way, provide and protect. And again, that's a reflection of what God is like and how he's seen in scripture. Uh, Genesis 48, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long. Genesis 49, the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Or the Psalms, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. 77, you led your people like a flock. 78, he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Psalm 80, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. 95 verse seven, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, most of that was written by David. And he understood God as a shepherd and he was to emulate and reflect God in that shepherd-like way towards his, his nation, towards his people. The three pictures that we see there, husband, a type of savior, and a shepherd. This is meant to be what, what we're to understand godly leadership or what God's king is supposed to be. Now, we've talked about this before, that Samuel exists not to show us a reality that we need to get back to, but it shows us the reality of the way things were and are and something that needs to change. Samuel is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's not saying this is what you need to do," He's saying, this is how things are and this is what needs to change." And that's why the first leader God gives to Israel is Saul. Through Saul, God is pointing out what's wrong with human worldly leadership. Um, in, in 1 Samuel 8, the, the, the leaders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, "We want you to give us a king. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They were a theocracy. They wanted to be a monarchy. They didn't want God to rule them. They wanted a man to rule them. In other words, give us a worldly kind of leader. Give us the, the form of leadership that the world embraces. Give us a worldly kind of leader. And then it says this in verse six, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says, okay, you want a worldly king. I'm gonna let you have it, but I'm gonna warn you first. Here's what a king of the world will do to you. Verse 11. These will... Uh, will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements for war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Notice it says the Lord will not answer you in that day. It doesn't say the Lord will not answer you at all. The Lord does answer in a minor way through David, but ultimately in a major way through Jesus. But you notice six times, what does it say? He will take. He'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take. This is a description of the worldly form of leadership which we embrace so easily and so readily. This is, is meant to, we're meant to look at 1 Samuel 8 and see this is the way things are not supposed to be. And yet this is the way that we have chosen things to be. This is what we have wanted. And, 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 and beautifully enough, 400 years before this, God knew this would happen. Deuteronomy 17, it says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. In other words, 400 years before 1 Samuel 8, God knew almost word for word what the people would come to him and say. Give us a king like the world has. He knew it. And in his sovereignty, he not only allows it, but he's going to use it. He's going to use it in a powerful way to point us to the king that we need. And and this is what it, it says. Verse 15, "'You may indeed set a king over you "'whom the Lord your God will choose, "'one from among your brothers "'you shall set as king over you. "'You may not put a foreigner over you "'who is not your brother, "'only he must not acquire many horses for himself "'or cause the people to return to Egypt "'in order to acquire many horses, "'since the Lord has said to you, "'you shall never return that way again. "'And he shall not acquire many wives for himself.'" Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. We're meant to see this vast contrast between the king of Deuteronomy 17 and the king of 1 Samuel 8. The king of Deuteronomy 17, we're gonna walk through that in a second, is, is opposed to Deuter- or 1 Samuel 8, is the king who takes. The, there's five things in Deuteronomy 17 worth, worth, worth noting. First, that this king is supposed to be one of them. He must be one of them. He must be an Israelite. He shouldn't, they shouldn't go outside of the country in order to find their king. should be one of them. Second thing, um, he must not return to Egypt in, in order to achieve power and military might. You, you can't go back to Egypt. Uh, Egypt is the place they were ransomed from, saved from, redeemed from. Don't go back to your old enemies in order to get military strength. Second thing. Uh, third thing. Must not acquire many wives. Must not acquire many wives. Uh, your wives will turn a man's heart away from the Lord. Must not acquire many wives. This guy should be faithful. The ways that, that Paul puts it to Timothy is a husband of one wife, a heart that is, that is faithful. Now, do we see that in David? I mean, 2 Samuel 5.13, we were just there. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. He takes and he takes and he takes because there's this one part of his heart that's unsubmitted to God. And that's gonna have devastating consequences, not only on his family, but on the rest of his kingdom. He's a king who who has many wives. So he's not the king of Deuteronomy 17. Uh, Fourth thing, he shouldn't acquire much wealth for himself. Um, Kings accumulate wealth through what? Taxes, right? To to take from your people in order to make yourself wealthy, right? Lastly, he's supposed to know the word of God. He's supposed to know God's word. In other words, uh, this king, after he becomes king, he's supposed to get out the scrolls, not just read them, but he's supposed to copy them down. He's supposed to have his own set. Like he's supposed to have his own Bible that he has with him every day and needs to be approved of by the, the Levite priest so they make sure that he gets it right. But, but he's got his own Bible. He's got his, 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 the own word of God and, and he's supposed to look at it every day and he's supposed to know who God is and what God has done for them. And he's supposed to find his identity in God so that he knows how to lead the people for God and to God. He knows God's word. There's five things that we see here. And all of these are set in contrast against 1 Samuel 8, the king that takes let's start applying this Begin to put all this together. There's two questions to address to help us out here. First, what do we learn from David? What can we learn from David in in this story? Secondly, uh, who's the better king? If David's not the king we need, who's the better king we need? More importantly, how do we know that's the king we need? How do we identify the king we need? Okay. Now, I want to primarily talk to dads for a minute. First of all, it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Now, in the church calendar, uh, Mother's Day is the third most attended day in church in the calendar year, right? Behind Easter and Christmas, Mother's Day. Do you know what the least attended day of church is? Father's Day. Now, I don't say that because I want you to look around the room and try to figure out who's not here. (laughs) All right? Not asking you to be, you know, Holy Spirit out to convict anybody this week of not being in church on Father's Day. There's lots of reasons for not being here. It's summertime. People take vacations, okay? But it does give us an overall picture of what spiritual leadership looks like in a Christian's home. That that oftentimes, uh, males... Leadership uh, surrenders to female leadership in regards to spiritual matters. That on Mother's Day, mom wants to go to church. On Father's Day, dad doesn't want to go to church. There's something about that, that that's worth noting, okay? I want to talk to dads for a second. Before I get there, though, I want to say this. If you're not a dad in the room, there's still a lot to learn from this. First of all, if you're a young man and you believe that one day God is is going to allow you to be married and have a family, to be a husband and to be a father, do not wait till you are a husband and a father to prepare for that. Young men, now's the time. Pay attention to this. Young women, if God is calling you to, to marriage and to be able to raise a family one day, you haven't yet found that guy, pay attention. Pay attention to the kind of guy that God would point you to. Pay attention to these things. Right? Search for these things in a man. Next, moms, wives. Uh, Pay attention to these things in order to help your husbands. Like to, to, to serve them and help them in this way. Not in a nagging way, not in a shameful way, but to help your husbands toward these things. And lastly, if you're here this morning and you're, you're a wife or your mother and your husband, he's not just here, not here today, he's not here anytime. Then, then the reality is, is that the, 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 the task of shepherding your family, the task of, of, of spiritually uh, protecting them, the, the, the task of spiritually husbanding your family, it is on you and I'm sorry. And I can't imagine being in your situation. And the reality is, is God has given me a, a helpmate who helps me, and this, this, this shepherding and this, the, the, this the, protecting and, and, and this, this husbanding, like, I can't do this without her, and I couldn't imagine it. Let me talk to you dads. Let's look at these three pictures again. The first picture in, seen in 2 Samuel 5 is that of a husband. And, and just to be clear, when we talk about a husband, I'm not saying you're, you, you have a marriage license and a wedding ring and you, you know, joint file your taxes. Husbanding as, as like a verb, it's like an action, right? To, to look at your, your, your spouse and to look at your family as bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh to recognize they're a part of you and how you treat them is ultimately how you treat yourself. This is what Paul says in Ephesians five twenty eight: Husbands should love their wives on, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. To recognize the connectedness that you have and, and how do you husband them? Well, you do what Jesus did, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do you husband like Christ is you Lay your life down. You submit your life. You lay your life down. That's what it it looks like to husband like Jesus. Now, here's the reality for us as as men. Many of us are not husbanding a family. We're husbanding a career. That what we're giving ourselves to, what what we're laying our lives down for, is a job and a career. It's for our bosses, it's for our coworkers, it's for the, the people who work under us, it's for our clients, it's for a product, it's for a sales, it's for, for us. We, we are husbanding, we're giving our lives to a career. And we think that by doing that, the byproduct of that will be protection and provision for our family. But the thing that we're giving our lives to is work. And, and, man, I just want to tell you, like, if she's good, if, you're, if your wife is one of the good ones, I am willing to bet then rather than a larger bank account and more square footage in your house, she would rather have your presence. About 10 years ago, now, uh, I was in uh, uh, retail, I was in management. We were living in the, the Puget Sound area, uh, and uh, uh, we began to look to buy a house. And I was, I was climbing the ladder and, uh, and, and we, were, we were looking for houses and one day Melissa looks at me and she says, I don't want a house, I want you to be home. She didn't care that we lived in an apartment. She didn't care about the square footage of her house. She didn't care how much money I was making. She needed me to be home. So as a result, I got out of management. I transferred to a lower position in, in a place that was more affordable in order to be home. If she's a good, a good one, guys, she's a godly woman, she's not looking for, for a large bank account. She's not looking for the bigger house. She's looking for your presence. She needs you. And many of us, what we're giving our lives for, what we're really husbanding is, is work. And you know who's the most guilty of this, I think? It's pastors. Uh, I have one buddy who, who, whose wife is a pastor, and his, his wife accused him of, of having a mistress of having an affair. And he adamantly delight, denied it, and she said, your mistress isn't another woman. Your mistress is the church. She's the one that you're giving your life to, and your family is getting what's left over. Any pastor's kids in the room who could verify that when you look at your, your parents? Dads, who are we husbanding? secondly, The second picture that we see from Second Samuel five is is a type of savior. To be clear, dads, you can't die for the sins of your kids. You can't can't save them from sin or from death. Only Jesus can do that. But what we are talking about is a type of of savior that fights for your family. Then are you fighting for your family? Are you fighting to protect them? You see, we limit protection to providing materially for them, but are we protecting their hearts and are we protecting their minds? Are you fighting like heaven to keep the wolves away? Like the song says, I paraphrase, mine's better. Heaven wins, by the way. But are we fighting to keep the wolves away? And the wolves are at the door and the wolves want in. And the reality is, as, as many of us, we think that we're providing materially, and so we're, we're protecting our family. When, when in reality, the, the wolves are, are 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 coming at our kids, and, and through, through through the screens that we're putting in their hands. I know I rant on this a lot. I know I do, but the reality is, as we are putting these devices in our kids' hands, and the world and the enemy has access to their hearts and to their minds, and teaching them a ton of lies. Are you protecting? Are you fighting for your kids against that? Are you fighting for them? And I know there's all sorts of apps and things that you could put on their devices to, con- to control that. But, it, but if you think that this is out of control, like if there's a hint that the enemy has access to your kid through this and you're not stopping it, take the phone away. I don't care if they get mad at you for it. You're the dad. Don't fear your kids, fear God. Take it away. Let them be mad at you. But protect the hearts and minds of your kids. Fight for them. Third picture. 2 Samuel 5, in terms of leadership, is that of shepherd. Now, with all three of these images, uh, husband, type of savior, shepherd, uh, the, the, there's overlap between them all, and they're all pictures of protection and and providing, but, but shepherd is the one that really asks the question, where are you leading your family? Where are you leading them? Are you leading them towards Christ or towards the world or are you even leading at all? Where are you leading? And, and I, and I wanna make the point, Like, if you love your family, love God more. Put God first because when you put God first, then you get out in front of your family and you lead him, lead them towards him. Like, are you praying for them? Are you interceding for your family? Do your kids see you praying? Do they see you in the word? Do they see you studying God's, God's word? Do they see you like, like, like Deuteronomy 17? You're copying it down. You're studying it. You're writing it. You're, you're, you're figuring it out. You're, you're knowing who God is and what he's done for you, and that's shaping your identity so that you could be a better Are you leading your family in this way? That's what shepherding is, leading them towards God. Husband, Savior, Shepherd. Now we look at David, and what do we learn in regards to these three aspects? Well, David was a great husband for Israel, not for the wives at home. Not a one of them. He husbanded his people Israel. Not anybody in his home. When it comes to, 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 to the, being a savior for fighting, he fought well for his people Israel. He didn't fight for his family. When it comes to shepherding, he shepherded the people of Israel. He didn't shepherd his own family. See, we, we live under this delusion, like if I go out there and if I get it done out there, then the byproduct will, that, will be that everything's okay in here. That if I'm successful out in the world, if I'm successful in, in the job and the career and all these other things, if I faithfully husband and save and fight and shepherd out there, then the byproduct of my family would be just fine. But the reality is, if we don't take care of the family one day, that failure will destroy anything that we do out there. David, he didn't take care of the family first. And as a result, it's going to have devastating effects on his kingdom. Devastating effects. What we learn from David is, is that we need to pay attention to what's going on in the homes. Second thing we see is that David's not the king we're waiting for. So who is? The answer to 99.9% of questions in church is what? Jesus right? Jesus is the king that we've been waiting for. Now, how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that it's not a celebrity or a politician, or how do we know that it's not a, a famous athlete? How do we know that Jesus is the king that we need? Well, we know because he checks off the boxes. You go back to Deuteronomy 17, the first box, is he one of us? Yes, he was, he was Jewish, a descendant of Abraham, but what's more is he was one of us. The God. The son leaves his throne and becomes one of us, born of a virgin, born fully God, but fully man, one of us. Because he's fully man, he's able to live the life that, that we can't live and use that life as a substitute for us to take our place of shame and guilt at the cross, that he goes there and we get his righteousness and the wrath of God comes down on him, but the only way that the propitiation works, the only way that the atonement works is that he was one of us. He couldn't do it as an angel. He couldn't do it as any... He had to be one of us. Was he one of us? Second thing that we see about Jesus. Did he desire to gain military power by returning to the enemy of God? Um, before Jesus begins his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, the enemy. And one of the things he's tempted with is Power. Power. And all he has to do to get that power is to embrace the enemy of God. Jesus doesn't do it. And how does he live his life of ministry? Right, his life is defined as a lamb being led to the slaughter. Third, did he acquire many wives? We know during his earthly ministry, he was never married. However, what we do see is that through the gospel, through what he accomplishes in life and death and resurrection and ascension, is he does have a bride, and the bride is the church, and he is a one-woman kind of man. And he gives his life for his bride. Faithful. Fourth, did he acquire wealth for himself? Again, the desert temptation. One of the temptations was, was wealth. Jesus rejected that. And he spent the next three years of his life saying things like, I don't even have a pillow to lay my head on. Homeless. You know that that Jesus' ministry was, it was funded by a group of people that followed him. Many of them were wealthy women. Did you know that? Why don't you consider that for a minute? That Jesus was materially provided for during his three years of ministry by women. Men, some of you think that what it means to provide for your family than your wife. We we, we confine provision to, to dollar signs. Men, we are called to provide in far greater ways than just money. Far greater ways than just money. Lastly, that he know the word of God. He was the word of God, right? He was the Logos. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the revelation of what God is like. And, and not only that, he knew the written word of God and he obeyed every part of it, every aspect of it. And what's more, he fulfilled it. You see, we know that Jesus is the king to look up to, 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 to follow, to emulate, to, to worship and submit to because he's the king of Deuteronomy 17. He's the king of Deuteronomy. He's not the king of 1 Samuel 8 who takes. And this is where I want to take communion with you this morning. You can begin to pass the the elements now. See, what we hold in our hands with these, these elements are symbols of what Jesus did in the fact that he didn't come to take, he came to give. He came to give. And the night before he was he was killed he took bread and he passed it out to his disciples he gave it to his disciples and he said this is me giving you me i'm giving you my body i'm giving you myself i'm going to go and do what you can't do i'm i'm handing my life over unto death so that you might have life he's giving himself and the bread demonstrates that, and it's a, it's a symbolic reminder of his giving. But he doesn't stop there. He says, this, this cup which he gave to his disciples, this is a symbol of a new relationship that you get. I'm giving you a new kind of relationship with your creator. That this is a new covenant. This is a new relationship that you get to have with the God who made you, and I'm mending the broken relationship that exists between you. I'm giving you access to your God to your king, to, to the one that made you. See, he came to give. The symbols that you hold in your hands, this is, this is God giving. Now men, before you take communion this morning, the reality is, and this applies to everybody, not just men, the reality is we're going to fail in leading. We're going to absolutely fail. David did. But I want to point out something to you. You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have something David didn't have. And that's the spirit of God living in you. Because of the cross, the the punishment of sin, you've been saved from it. But because of of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, we now have power over sin. We have power to to become the husband, to to become the, the... The protector and and, and type of savior to become the shepherd that we're called to be. We have a power that David had. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did come on people from time to time, but it never lasted, it was just a short amount of time. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God inside you. The question is, are there parts of your heart that you're, you're holding over here, that you're, that you're holding on to, that you're not letting God have access to? You're not letting the Spirit of God have access to you and you. The unsubmitted portions of your heart. We're gonna fail. And, and, and the beautiful thing is, is that when we fail, we come right back to the cross because he's still giving He's still giving his grace. He's still giving his mercy. And through repentance. Men, is there anything that you need to repent of this morning in terms of what we talked about? In terms of, 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 of ways that we've failed in giving our lives to our family and we've given ourselves to someone else or something else. The ways that we've failed in fighting for our families. The ways that we have failed in leading our families to God. Is there something that you need to repent of? Then, then this is the time and place to do that and take a moment to do that. But, but the beautiful thing about this is that because we fail, we can keep coming back. And we can repent, but we can also turn in faith. And we can ask the Holy Spirit for renewed help. And we can continue to move forward. And we can continue to follow this, this king of ours who gives. Who gives. He checks off all the boxes. He's the right king worth following. He accomplishes what we can't accomplish ourselves. I'm gonna pray. Partake of communion elements when you're ready. And then we're gonna sing. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that long before you knew we would uh, want another king, you made a way. That over and over again, you've, you've demonstrated in your sovereignty and your goodness that despite our failures, you overcome. That despite the ways that we have rejected you and walked away from you, you have provided ways back for, Like from the beginning. You are a God who, who you didn't just start this world and, and, and get it going and then walk away and, and just sit back and watch what happens, but you're a God that's, that's intimately involved and you hold it in your hand and you are a good father. And Lord Jesus, you came willingly in obedience to your father, a better son than we are, a perfect son. But you go and you take our place. You become our righteous older brother that, that saves us. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would live by your power, that that you would bring to mind just right, right now what are the elements or places of our heart that are unsubmitted to you. Would you confront us with these things so that we might turn, so that we might obey you and that we might demonstrate the power that you've given us in order to husband well, in order to sacrifice well, and to serve and to to shepherd in Jesus' name, amen.